0: This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we are joined once again by C. Derek Varn for another holiday episode on Jean Baudrillard. With the postmodern fog of war surrounding conflicts like the Ukraine and Syria in mind, we decided to revisit the collection of essays first published in 1991. The Gulf War did not take place. And what we found there was maybe less than what we were hoping for.
1: That's enough. enough.
2: Sounds good.
3: Okay. Um, but yeah, so I was kind of explaining um i was kind of explaining cuz there were some people in the chat like asking like you were actually going to do vr yes we were actually going to do vr we we built we built like a basic set you know like we we just had some problems with like the getting the video workflows on this to work cuz yeah you know, part of the problem is you know when you when you're trying to do something that nobody else is doing you know the the, the stuff to do that isn't, you know, like it's hard to learn a system for like good commercial software that already exists when you have to like mod shit and like, you know, <laughs> tweak stuff to do something that nobody else is doing. uh You know, that's, you know, that tends to be a little bit trickier. So it didn't work this time. We are going to, we are going to find a way to make this work. Like, we are going to find, a, find way a way to like, make it work. We're going to well, find I a mean, way to make a video. I don't know if we're going to have to do like some kind of like VTuber thing where we do like motion tracking to like our faces like no webcam we'll figure something out
2: it's nothing about that the problem is i built my own computer and i'm not a computer engineer and uh i need to like wrap the heating better that's pretty much it we're flattering ourselves a little bit by saying no one's doing this um but i think it's kind of great that i had to go through all these different layers of the simulation trying to get closer and closer to freedom. And then one of them crashed and I couldn't figure out which one it was. And I was thrown out and I couldn't even talk. That I think fits a little bit more the image of the simulation in this book that we read <laughs> than than in the Baudrillard work that I actually like where he's a little more like, yeah, fuck it, I don't know, it's fun. And he takes the nihilism, you know, in a, in a, in a nice, active Nietzsche way. Um, this, this has much more of the stink of the anti-modern resentment that a lot of Baudrillardian kind of commentators uh, these days seem to have picked up on.
3: Yeah, no, it's a catastrophe. You know, it's a, it was a simulation that resulted in a catastrophe uh, and now, uh, now we're here. We brought in, we brought in C. Derek Varner has been very patient and, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, part of the, like, we're returning to this part of, yeah, part of the conceit was we would use like the Baudrillard thing. It's very like cheeky. We're going to have like a VR component or whatever. And, you know, but it, it, it you know, it, it's fine that it didn't work. I think
2: this isn't, I don't know. This they, is, they, I, they, they believe the key fabe. Yeah. We were totally trying to set up VR. I'd read this
3: piece a couple times a while ago, and I don't know. I feel like I dislike it a lot more than when I read it maybe like ten years ago or something like that. Um, yeah. It's I don't know. It's very I don't know. It's very obtuse. It's like it's 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 uh. <laughs> there's just something. It, there's there's almost something like kind of at points really uh, like offensive about it. Uh, not only the way like he talks about Arab people, but also like um, oh yeah,
2: there's there's that.
3: The, but also just I don't know the idea of. I mean, it makes sense if you. So, the piece we're talking about is the Gulf War did not take place, and basically what Baudrillard did was it, he was co- he basically was co- in a series of essays for I think uh, what was the Le Monde was, it, Le Mans? was it the Le- Le- yeah the left newspaper in France. He was co- he was doing his quote unquote coverage of of the Iraq War, which is basically to. Almost review it as a cultural object. Uh, the the first Gulf War, um, yeah, the first Gulf War, experience. Or,
2: or I should say, the 1991 Gulf War. Right, right.
1: Um, what well, actually really matters this is 1991 Gulf War because a lot of his claims make no sense if you apply it to the book to the uh, to George W's Gulf War.
2: Yeah,
3: right. Well, and he he his views shift when the the W the Iraq War happens. Like his reading on that, like he from what I read. um just a—I read this review of he had, he had like a public debate with Derrida about it, and he applied like this Hegelian framework uh, to analyzing it. Um, and he basically seemed to think that like he had similar fear, feelings that like 9/11 was a genuine event, whereas the Iraq War was a second non-event, but not quite in the same way that the original Gulf War was. But in these essays, what he basically does is he kind of like reviews the Gulf War. As a, as a media object consumed through the medium of cable television, which, you know, experientially for like Westerners at the time, it was right. Um, but, you know, with the hindsight of history, there is something like vaguely obscene about that. But it as like a historical artifact, giving you a sense of maybe what it was like to experience it at the time and a sort of critique of. What, how it is that, you know, clearly, like the prevailing forces in the United States wanted people to experience this. I think it has some interest.
2: Hmm. Um, the word critique, Baudrillard claims that he will, be not, he will not be doing critique tonight. He will be moving beyond the critical strategy. To what end, exactly? I think what he's. Or, <sighs> Now, let's see. That might have been someone else's claim about it in the beginning of the book.
1: What does that mean, really? Move beyond what is, the what is, strategy? Uh, I mean,
2: in, a, in the deflationary sense, which I'm inclined to read this essay in a, in a pretty deflationary way, because it kind of sounds like someone saying, ah, this shit's not going to happen. And then when it did happen, someone's like, well, by war, I, you know. Well, I didn't mean war in the same way. Then I mean, you mean war. I mean, by war, I, I mean deterrence. and But, the, you know, kind yeah. of um, doing a lot of blow or something. Uh, this, this is very dismissive. But, like, if I thought that, if, that this means anything, it would be something like this. That essentially, like, critique is empty when it comes to war. And yeah, critique of media, like, as such and coverage as not revealing the truth is also sort of empty because the modern battlefield battlefield of war is in some way and you know you wouldn't agree with this phrasing um, is some way constructed with media like as it one of its primary tools information is like a like one of the primary tools of war and i mean that's not exactly new but the way he's presenting it is with, you know, it's kind of funny. He actually does touch on real information theory in the most like oblique way here and there.
1: Yeah. Um, he does. Although he does it, he, he like packs it down with so many fucking metaphors that. I uh, mean, literally, like I was actually just looking over the information theory part. Like, information is like an unintelligent missile, which never finds its target and therefore crashes yeah. anywhere. I guess. I mean, it's just information is only ever an erratic missile with a fuzzy destiny. I mean, he just does this prose poetry shit for pages. And and I don't know, when I was younger, I maybe I was impressed by the like like the verbal prestidigitation of this and I thought some of the what what I think we would not call critique. I think we would call it punditry frankly. Um in this to be to to be more annoying even when it's kind of accidentally accurate but it, i maybe you guys asked me to to read this at the wrong day i just got through reading uh the first few chapters of john levy martin's thinking through theory and i was like oh my god he did every single trick that john levy martin warns about when you talk about theorists like equivocating between critique and non-critique uh uh, having strong and weak readings, um, having having if you if you take certain things he says not as analogous arguments but as actual arguments, they fall apart. A lot of it seems circular. A lot of it's just asserted. Um, I think it says a lot about the state of post-Marxist theory in the nineteen nineties that this even saw the light of day. <laughs> Did you
3: say it's no, the wrong day or the right day? Yeah, no that's, that's that's I mean that's good that you actually because like I mean yeah. it, you're you're right like I mean I wouldn't not maybe critique is the wrong – I use, I use the wrong word but it is derisive like he, I think he and I think there is and there are points where cuz he has just very like I'm so cool like I'm so jaded you know like this 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 is bullshit you know this you know he's he's trying to like out nihilist the, the nihilism like of this thing but At the same time, there are points where like his anger and his humanism does show a little bit um, in spite of himself, but um, they're not no, always, yeah I mean
2: they're not always the best parts of the essay either. Sometimes right. his humanism shows in this way where he really does seem afraid of the future, he really does seem afraid of like in vitro fertilization, like he does really seem afraid of i don
1: 't know But that's, that's something I see with almost all Baudrillard after the um the divine left and, uh, and the saddle of silent majorities is like his, his assertion that there is no more authentic, no matter how much he seems to claim, there's no mourning or loss for authenticity. The fact that he posits the question indicates that he actually does miss it. Um, and that actually makes him different than other theorists of the same type. I mean, uh, um, Umberto Eco is also a hyper real theorist and he doesn't have the same kind of problems where the I'm too school for uh too cool for schoolness comes out, but also like he's secretly crying in the corner that we can't get to reality anymore. Like um and that I be- definitely get that feel from from Baudrillard's late work. And and I think this is why for many, many years I interpreted him as a as a as a crypto-conservative thinker. Um, Because there is this whole, well, it doesn't really matter. It's all, you know, I really like the hyper-real. But yet, I don't know that I believe it, particularly when you have read his earlier essays and you see how angry he is with, like, the left not understanding the political terrain in very real senses. Like, so that, you know, I. I, I know it doesn't help to re- to read an author and go. I don't trust you, but I don't trust him.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think there is a little bit of a meeting of like subject and like author here because, the, like, the Gulf War really was kind of like the apotheosis of like Washington's ability to like stage manage a war at like a, at like a, at an intensity and level that they hadn't really been able to do before or since. I mean, you had that maybe a little bit with world war two and like the kind of, uh, Hollywood, like productive apparatus that was mobilized in the way that a lot of industry was mobilized to produce arms and so forth. But, you know, it, it, it at least in like the postmodern or post seventies era, like their ability to project a certain public image of, you know, of the Iraq wars as kind of like Rambo operation or something. Um, probably it probably was at its most saturated they tried to do this again and they did it mostly on cable news like during the during the iraq war but there was still massive like public pushback against that that they had to report on that um you know and there was uh at least at least maybe i was there because i remember but like there was more of a built up Alternative media networks that were putting out like anti, you know, anti Iraq war, anti this, anti that. I mean, even Hollywood is, was pretty essentially producing like anti war movies, even though the war just started. You know, um, so it, 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 it in some ways this does provide a snapshot of a particular time, even if even as you know problematic as like Baudrillard here is here or whatever.
1: Yeah,
2: I think the reason why we're touching on it is because usually usually well I, i kind of went deep into the simulation found a higher form of freedom and i don't miss reality you know i (laughs) i i I see myself as someone who like accepted the niche challenge the baudrillardian challenge i've come out feeling much better um like I, i kind of have a way of trusting that there is something underneath the posturing when I've been reading, you know, a bunch of stuff that I've read from him. And I'm not so sure there is anything underneath the posturing here. I like the first essay the most. It happens to also be the shortest. And I don't think he totally agrees with that description that he's making in the first essay by the third essay. And the third essay is the content that I usually hear ascribed to this series of essays, that it's all really about the media and it's all really about like, you know, asymmetrical conflict and how it's not really, you know, there's this. I remember in a chat room, the, pers- the first thing somebody said to defend Baudrillard was, you know, what about the Gulf War it did not you know, take place? And um, maybe I brought it up. I don't remember. Um, and how, like, well, the important thing here is it wasn't really a war. It was an it was this asymmetrical conflict that was really more like a massacre, where both sides don't even really have this the same goals. Um, and then you know they could say that you know even Noam Chomsky kind of said something similar. That's not really what I think he started off meaning at all, based on just reading this through. Because in the, in the first essay, I think he actually lays out what is different about war in mutually assured destruction. There's an adage that war never changes, but it very obviously did. There's this weird dance in modern warfare, especially between great powers, but this is why things don't actually get worked out between great powers why things are a proxy war, why there's all this. There's an air of hostage taking and being held hostage. There's an air of not just deterrence of the enemy, but deterrence of yourself, so that you don't force the enemy to go down the nuclear rabbit hole. There are all these things that are, that are different. And he says that it like defies Aristotelian logic or something, but in the first essay, <laughs> It's actually quite formalizable, I think, what he means. And maybe uh, I'm just not reading him charitably enough to grant him some continuity that I sort of assume that he actually means something different.
1: One of the things I noticed reading at this time is we had... I, I, I very much noticed that it seems like this is a post-hoc series of, of adjustments to a theory. Um, and that should always be taken as suspect. Anytime you have someone who uh, who is trying to assert something and post-hoc shifting what they mean by it, and in a way where they don't own up, that they've changed their fundamental opinion. So I'll, I'll give you a category that's really important to the first essay like that I think we need to deal with. And I'm, I'm going to turn off the fact that I'd read a whole lot of war theory, and having read a whole lot of war theory, I actually think... Um, as I told you guys off air, I think, uh, Baudrillard is Montan Bailey, the essay writer at this point of his career. Um, we should probably go into that at some point, but yeah. Well, I mean, it, like, almost everything he says is a weak and strong form, and the strong form is ridiculous, and the weak form is, like, obvious. (laughs) So, and, 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 and the only way it seems to have any theoretical insight is the strong form. But let's, let me go into this, because um, I'm going to read it. This is from page 24 of the original printing. Well, maybe it's the original printing. I don't know. Um, non-war is characterized by the degenerate form of war, which includes hostages manipulation and negotiation. Hostages and blackmail are the purest products of deterrence. The hostage has taken place of the warrior. He has become the principal actor, the simulacral protagonist, or rather, in his pure inaction, the protagonizer of non-war. Um... The warriors bury themselves in the desert, leaving only hostages to occupy the stage, including all of us as information hostages in the world of the media stage. The hostage is a phantom actor, the extra who occupies the powerless stage of war. Today, it is a hostage at the strategic site. Tomorrow, it is a hostage at the Christmas present as exchange value and liquidity. Fantastic degradation of what should was the very figure of impossible exchange with Saddam Hussein. The strong value has weakened and become the symbol of a weak war. Saddam has made himself the capitalist hostage of value after the market enslaves and proletarian, the vulgar merchant of the hostage market. Taking the place of the warrior's challenge, hostage value becomes synonymous with the, de- with the debility of war. We are all hostages of media intoxication, blah, 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 blah. Why right? do read so much of that? Because I want you to notice that... There are shifts. This is the Martin Bailey strategy. But even in the first essay, I'm like, okay, what is non-war? All right, what is non-war? The non-war is somewhat uh the the product of deterrence causing asymmetric warfare where all kinds of checks and, and mediations are super important. Okay. But why not just say that? Well, then you have this attempt to uh make it fundamental to modern exchange in life. So you have these analogies to value, to exchange value, um, impossible exchange, uh, historical analogies to slave markets, et cetera. Um, Theoretically, the positing of value and exchange value being manifested and a figure like Hudam Hussein and the figure of the hostage is only interesting if you actually mean it. But if you actually mean it, it makes no fucking sense. If you don't mean it and take it as analogy, then it does make sense, but it's not saying anything. It is incorporating all these other modes of interpretation as metaphors and stacking them on each other so he's mixing the metaphors deliberately you can't really tell what he's claiming is he claiming something to a field experience such as some rocker theory is he claiming something that has to do with the value of exchange in an economic sense as in as, as regards of historical materialism um is he claiming that most of this is just a media thing and that that actually has supplanted the um the traditional exchange notions uh, you can't tell from what he's actually saying, so he can retreat to the weak form which makes sense, right in which case yes, it's an analogous to get you to think about the way all this is hyper real and staged under the under the, uh, the auspices of deterrence and the fact that any war can become a proxy war between great powers in 1991. Although, again, ironically, this whole war is about to happen right before the Cold War is completely over because the Soviet Union's gone. Right? And, and, and in some ways, uh, even this analysis is like after the point. It's not really as explanatory as it seems because the Soviet Union is not really all that caught up in the proxy war between. I don't know uh, the Baathists in the United States. They just they have their own problems. It's not really actually at play, but he's not dealing with that either.
3: Soviets gave the rubber stamp to this, like everyone else in the coalitions did too. I mean, they weren't really involved, but they didn't step right. in either.
1: They just didn't care, right? So yeah. it's it it makes it makes some of the. The will not take place part, which is, I, I agree with you, Esri, the more interesting essay, but it's, the, it, it's also the most wrong essay because it actually makes claims. But even in it, as I'm reading it, you can see how he's, try, he's going on like whole tangents of theoretical layering that anyone who's trained not just in formal logic, but in even like sociological methods or sound theory is going to have to pick apart. Now, I'm gonna blame some of this on the fact the Academy of France makes people come up with new words for every fucking thing, which we then retranslate into English weirdly. But uh, which I'm mean, I'm serious about that being a theoretical limitation in French, in specific. That's why it generates so many neologisms. Like you have to in French to get past the Academy of France, uh, which is something I didn't think about till recently. But there's also a sense in which like, why make the analogy to exchange value? Why are you making an analogy from a concrete to a completely different formal analytic that like, that is the least clear um, analytical uh, like form of argument. Right. And I know I sound like a logic bro here, but like, this is a serious, I don't know that this says anything.
3: Yeah. I mean, like when I, I, the note I wrote for that, particular passes it just sounded to me like like a drunken barroom free association you know what i mean or it sounded like um like jeff goldblum in in independence day where it's like a uh, virus A uh, virus makes you sick we put a computer virus make the alien sick you know like it, it's it's it
2: at best the the thing he's saying about like exchange value i forget what this was all for he he says that oh yeah promotion this is i guess in the second essay where he starts going off about promotion as an end to itself and if there is a coherence uh, here to the way that he analogizes to exchange value it's almost like i i hesitate to do this because it seems against the spirit of Baudrillard, but i'm not sure it is you know there's like a real economy and then there's this like parasitic speculative economy on top of it right Uh, in in a certain critique of capitalism. Is this a Marxist critique of capitalism? I don't think it really is. Um, I mean, maybe Marxist in the broader sense, unfortunately. And so, yeah, promotion as a thick-skinned parasite as our culture, it would likely survive, it would likely survive a nuclear conflict. Um, there's just something kind of weirdly structurally anti-Semitic about it. At, at <laughs> about that particular passage. And that's the way it makes the most sense to me. That's not a defense. I,
1: I, I you know happy
2: Kanaka by the way.
1: I'm gonna read the last paragraph of that first essay because I think maybe it'll help us get to something that's that's useful but also frustrating about this. Uh war has not escaped this virtualization, which is like a surgical operation. Again he can't so I can stop it with the metaphors. The aim of which is to present a facelifted war, the cosmetically treated specter of its death, and even its more deceptive televised subdiffuse, as we saw in turasora even the military has lost the privilege of use value, the privilege of real war. The torrent has passed by that way and spares no one. No more than the politician, the military personnel do not know what they'll make of their real function, their function of death and destruction. They are pledged to the decoy of war, as the others are to the decoy of power. Now, there are actual claims in that, unlike maybe what I was saying earlier. (laughs) Um, But again, there's a whole lot of of Mont and Bailey and, like, really strong generalization. And I don't want to sound all, all Alan Sokol here, but, like... You can't make strong generalizations like this without backing them up. They are never attempted to be actually backed up except by metaphor. Like, uh, and yeah, if we, we, we could call this a Marx-ish reading. It's definitely of the school of post-Marxism. Um, and he's using Marxist vocabulary. Like, even the military has lost the privilege of its use value. The privilege of real war. Well, I'm going to read that like a, like a theorist or logician who is more from the analytic or even like a like more properly dialectical reading of that would be. Even the military has lost the privilege of its use value. We define the use value as real war. Real war's purpose is destruction and death. Those are contested phrases that he is stating as assertions are... Pro- he's stating them almost axiomatically as truths. The more axioms you build, the harder it is to justify the axioms. So he doesn't even fucking bother. Right? Like, is the function of war always destruction and death? Clearly that is part of it, but is destruction and death for its own sake or for something else? What is the real function as opposed to that fake function? If misleading optics are part of war going all the way back to, like, the 6th century, and we know they actually are... Then what is the fundamental, like ontological shift? There isn't one. But, you know, it, it is, it is, it is to me the assertion of real and non-real, of sac, uh, of um, of versus uh, uh, authentic, is just a bullshit binary. Like that he re- like the, the latter half of his career is based on. And so while he has some interesting observations about, the, about, about deterrence, you know, stopping what people think war is for. Um, and, and maybe there is more interesting, like, there are interesting things to say about, like, war apparatuses believing they're a bullshit or whatever. Um, yeah, and in one of the,
2: in the middle of, like, a bunch of raving bullshit, I forget if it's in the second or the third essay, he actually does get into an interesting conversation about, The United States doesn't understand certain symbolic things in war and treats everything very pragmatically, therefore is willing to put up with a lot of humiliation and then also like seem to drain the respect of everybody it does uh, business with. I actually think this says that kind of fits the Afghanistan war, maybe a lot more than the Iraq war.
1: Yeah. There are some interesting things in the last essay that I think are, are more interesting. Um, I'll, I'll read it. This is on page 69 of my version, and essay 3, or maybe it's essay 2, no, essay 3, did not take place. Yeah, it did not uh, uh, Page 69. An example of deterrence itself. It only functions well between equal forces. Ideally, each party should possess the same weapons before agreeing to renounce their use. It is therefore the dissemination of atomic weapons alone which can assure effective glow of deterrence and the indefinite suspension of war. The present politics of non-dissemination plays with fire. There is always enough madmen to launch an archaic challenge below the level of an atomic repose. Witness Saddam. Things being as they are, we should place our hopes in the spread of weapons rather than in their limitation. Interestingly, not, interestingly enough, this is an old libertarian argument, but uh this is an actual argument. Here, too, the beneficial perverse effect of dissemination would be to take, take it into account. We should escalate the virtual, uh, the virtual of destruction under the penalty of de escalating the real. This is the paradox of deterrence. It is like information, culture, or any other material spiritual goods, only their profusion renders them indifferent and neutralizes their negative perverse effects. Multiply vices in order to assure the collective good. Uh, interestingly enough, this is the exact argument that Hans Hermann Hopp made for the von Mises Institute, that we should give everyone, not, not just, like, not just should everyone have guns, but everyone should have the right to nuclear weapons, not just as states, but as individuals.
2: So. It's the, uh, the the states one has a game theoretic backing. It's actually, like, backed by the kinds of things that Baudrillard is like. It's a, You can't see it with dumb math glasses, but you kind of can. Yeah, I guess that's his, like, gesture at trying to go beyond the real here it just seems more empty than usual, I should say. Because, you know, there is a part of me that, when I was reading uh, "Fashionable Nonsense by Alan SoCal, Bricmont, uh there's no way i pronounce that guy's name right. Um, when, when I was reading that, like, I was more or less like, yes, yes, get them, kings. Like, go SoCal, team SoCal. But um, one, I think there's one person that kind of Responded to the book being like, oh, man, this is like, uh, you know, correcting, you know, typos and love letters or something. And I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? These people are doing like critical social theory. Shouldn't their claims be examined with rigorous logic and all the cool shit that I like? And yeah, this this kind of this kind of critique or whatever the fuck it is, um, has nothing to offer like that. And it's kind of a vibe. I, I blame two things. So There's the French university system, um, like Derek is saying. But yeah, I always thought of it as being a friend to the concept or maybe being an enemy to the concept, but a friend to the, the new word that you make and to stand in for the concept. This is, this is all Delusian way of thinking of being a friend to the concept or something. That ended up becoming a marketing exercise um, in the French Academy. And then there's this, like, older German penchant, uh, Teutonic penchant for overstatement that seeped its way in through Nietzsche. Because, you see, Nietzsche thought that everything would be a lot better if we just exaggerated when we talked so that people could get us better, you know? People would really vibe with what we're saying. And it would be a more effective way to communicate. So essentially, you know, a world of tweets would end up, you know, being a more communicative vital world. I'm not sure that's what happened. I'm not sure that's what happened. And I think, you know, Baudrillard is maybe a case in point that, yeah, it, it's bad, but kind of like saying the simulation is bad saying this, you know, this guy is full of shit. Almost like it, it's the reason he's doing it is to trip this response. So he could be like, see, you just don't get it, dude. Like,
3: well, you're, you're, you're right that it is, like, a vibe. But, like, the whole – I mean, what makes him interesting to read but also, you know, makes him kind of useless beyond just, like, the vibe thing is that he basically reads everything through the lens of, you know, his, like, epistemological concerns with this, about the subject's inability to ever, like, properly grasp or, like, model the object, you know. And that just happens to, like, run up against, um, you know – Outcomes from like perverse incentives in like institutions and social systems, right? Uh, But this is like this is kind of what happens when you, uh, you know, completely untether this stuff from like a Marxist analysis that, you know, you can basically tether this stuff to social and material phenomenon. And so it's like this, it's like this inside out way of looking at it that's that's kind of interesting, but also kind of obtuse. I
1: mean, it's interesting in the way prose poetry is interesting, right? Which uh, you know, I don't think it's unique to France. I think what's what's unique to France is that they make up so many new words that you have to figure out the precise variants of. Um, or they use words in such strange ways, like event and non-event, and, and these kind of categories that you can spin off forever. And their vagueness is part of how they function. And again, like, I know I sound like the stick-in-the-mud analytic, but but even even from, like, the standpoint of, like, proper dialectical claims, which have all kinds of causal problems, like, you know, at least I usually know what is being claimed to account for what. And this, I I don't even know often what field we're talking about because the use of, of like, what I really do think are effectively red herrings on the argument of throwing in, there's so many places where he just throws in random, like, Marxist economic terminology or historical materials terminology, but it doesn't, it doesn't really signpost anything. And, yeah, there's the whole, like, whoa, you don't get it. You, you don't understand my Nietzschean irrationalism and my function against, tr- you know, truths to assert our will or our... Except this is not about the assertion of will. Most of this actually renders down to as what Jake said, an epistemological claim.
3: And his his characterization he he comes at it from this very backwards way, but like but that's the result of like, you know, broader like political economy questions in the United States, but also institutional incentives within the American military itself, right? The obsession with like uh you know being very, this very like tech heavy military is you know, it's not the result of, like, increasing virtualization or whatever or their attempts to, like, model everything. It's the result of the fact that, like, your career as an officer in the military is tied to a particular piece of tech that you're expert in. And so you have to push that tech, you know, if you, and the success of that tech being adopted determines you're rising through the rankings. You know what I mean? But that's not, like – that's not the result of, like, bad epistemology. That's just, like, you know. And, yeah, yeah there it, – it's – it's ineffectiveness on the battlefield, you, like all that is basically just like a, like an outward. Resu- it's a result of like of, of social and institutional stuff. It's not the result of like, but it's it's kind of it's amusing to kind of read it from this like you know metaphysical like ass ba, backwards sort of way. And so you'll sometimes like run into things that are correct that are that are surprisingly on point, even though he isn't really proceeding from like a sound basis, you know.
2: When you're you're dealing with this much of a dearth of truth value, the other part of your brain needs to turn on. It's the lizard part. It's the part that's like, what's the angle here? What is the function of this piece? If not to at least have the pretense of transmitting truth value. How does this work? Why is this useful? What does it mean? What does it say? It's a, you know different kind of rationality but I guess that's where it leads me to go it puts me in a suspicious place which again I like Baudrillard I read Baudrillard I know that that's where he wants you to go he wants to troll you there so that you're like ah this guy's denying reality or you just kind of jump on him or even um I would object a little bit that the military is operating with bad epistemology The military is operating with this incredibly technologically sophisticated, pragmatic apparatus and missing out on important cultural factors. Like, I think that's, like, you know, broadly prescient. Like, but it shouldn't, yeah, but I guess I agree with the substance, what you're saying, that it shouldn't matter that, you know, there's this uh, broad technical apparatus What's really off here is that, like, he's not really acknowledging that they do have a shared objective <laughs> that, that both people are trying to complete.
3: So he talks a lot about, like, the, the, the sanitization, the aim to have, like, zero deaths on the part of Americans and so forth, like, the, as a part of this broad, broader aspect of, like, virtualization. But again, all of that comes from, like, genuine constraints that are placed upon the American military by, like, Public expectations, and you know, like they have to, they so much of what he experiences in this war in the form of watching CNN, like they they do have to like sell this war to the American and sell the idea of war to the American public because the American public's mood towards it for a mixture of reasons is broadly kind of against it, and it it, it hamstrings them in ways. You know, they it, they couldn't really they couldn't really take the gloves off even a little bit, like the torture stuff and all that shit in Iraq until they had like, you know, nine 11 and some kind of cautious belly to activate the public. Most Americans, you know, ever since Viet, especially ever since Vietnam, I feel like, you know, why should we get involved in anything that's like outside of our immediate purview? And why should, why should we send people to die for any of this stuff or go around killing people? Like, I think there is kind of a broadly like anti-war, vaguely anti-war sentiment in the American public and especially because like so much of our national origins the way comes from, you know, essentially overthrowing an empire and so forth. And some of that's been laundered through cultural Marxism and like Star Wars and shit that kind of reinforces, you know, a lot of this stuff. That kind of keeps them from being able to operate as like a overt imperial hegemon out in the open the way a lot of planners probably want to. But all that is like that's like political shit, you know what I mean? That is informing these outcomes. Um, it's not just – it's it's not driving towards this virtualization as a part of, like, this broader, um, you know, social, co- like, collective drive to realizing that there is no truth behind anything and it's all the simulation of itself, you know.
2: But the, there is a weird move away from, like – and this is sort of a – okay, you know, I'm running defense here, right? Like, there is this development towards getting troops off the ground happening like that's, like, in process – and won't be really, I'm not gonna say complete, but like, doesn't appear as it in its fullest form until maybe like the Obama administration, where, you know, we start getting drone uh, warfare in earnest. We actually do have people, you know, literally using like a PlayStation controller to merc people in real life the way that you would have them do so in, you know, call of duty or battlefield or something
1: that's only because there's no mutually assured deterrence on that though like the moment both sides have drones that you can't do that anymore and that was a argument i actually made uh, against people arguing for the drone war as a humane form of war uh during the obama administration because uh, now people do have drones and it's not nearly as useful uh, i find this interesting And these observations that we're making um, are exceptions that actually prove other rules. Afghanistan drone war is based on an asymmetry of technology and the fact that uh, the other great powers feel like, well, just let America do whatever the fuck they want. We don't really want to deal with it right now. We want trade to continue. And everybody needs oil. Whereas... When you talk about asymmetrical warfare and almost every other situation, it doesn't go like Gulf War One. It goes like Gulf War Two in Afghanistan, and Vietnam, and most places outside of Israel, Palestine. Actually, I mean, and and honestly, if you were going to understand what was better, you know, how that plays out, you you go read uh, asymmetrical war theory. You don't read this, right? Like. I mean, this does something that I find maddening in general. I mean, I did a whole rant about this on another show recently about people extrapolating from what are weird outlier cases to the end of X, like uh, Paul Sweezy claiming that capitalism was over because of Fordism or um, the monopoly capital leading to the end of the dominance of value or... Like this, the the, the virtualization and, or, and orchestration of war going to the point because of deterrence that it means that almost no, you know, none of it's really all that substantive. And in both these cases, the immediate case after it proves that this was a weird one-off. And honestly, this war was unfinished, meaning that almost everything stated in the conclusion here isn't particularly valid, even from a historical perspective, not just from a logical one. Now, I think if we went and looked over Baudrillard's complete life, we see that he would probably nuance this to deal with, you know, nine eleven as an event, and then the second uh, Gulf War as a non-event, but related to a real event, etc. But... Whirlpools of nihilism. Basically sucking in the planes. Yeah, but the, the thing is, I don't buy that they're actually, they, they can maintain the nihilism. I, I, I don't.
2: Like, no, no, no. That, that, that's what he said about 9-11, that the planes right. virtually suck, were sucked in by the two yeah. big whirlpools of nihilism. I, I happen to remember it, because it got him in trouble.
1: Yeah, I remember that. But, I mean, but what I mean even in here, because there's this... The way he talks about the lamentation over the loss of the real, whatever the fuck that is, throughout this indicates, at least at some level it was a believable delusion before or it was actually real. And he doesn't just state it like in a value neutral way. He's not, he's not arguing it on analytic grounds, which, which to me, the, the, to me, Asri, you know, how you have a rubric of suspicion, my rubric of suspicion is none of this is actually like, this is all like trying to, to put it in the parlance of today, this entire essay is cope. I just feel like
2: if the vibes, right. I'm kind of actually taking it on its own terms, and the vibe's not right. There's something really off about this that does characterize his later work. Now that I'm thinking about the Twin Towers as whirlpools of nihilism, Mister Baudrillard, isn't isn't is I thought you were a nihilist too? What happened, man? You used to be cool.
3: Yeah, I could. I guess I could imagine an essay like this being written now about like COVID or whatever.
2: Right, like, well, COVID, no, that
3: sounds, sounds sounds fake to me. That's not going to happen. So
2: you that know? is more or less like <laughs> Bojard's legacy. As it turns out, has a lot more to do with the later phase of his career, unfortunately. And there is this tendency for critical theory to be this political placeholder that ends up breaking right and bringing a bunch of people who are in this cultural circle that, and you know, maybe have some egalitarian kind of vibes. That probably would have broke left, but, you know, there is this just really cool, entertaining theory heroine that you can do for five years, and then, I don't know. Like, yeah. things turn around. People change. Try not to overgeneralize from that. But I haven't really read that much from this period of his career. And I can see where the people online get this from. I feel like this is, this is the Baudrillard equivalent of when, uh, of when the production gets, has a lot more reverb and the songwriting gets dumber and, um, and everything feels a little more phoned in, you know, from like a band from the 70s.
3: Yeah, no, yeah, this is the Coke album.
2: This is totally the fucking Coke album. And, there, and people put this forward as the first one to listen to. That's tragic. That's like, oh, Pink Floyd, you got to start with the final cut. You have to start yeah, with the final yeah. cut. Come on. And if
3: if if we consider this as like I don't know like the diary of like like you know a coked up like French theoretician like watching the Gulf War on TV and like it, it it's it, it is kind of useful or I, I, it is interesting like that's how I've always kind of read it you know what I mean.
2: Gonzo journalism. Uh,
3: one thing he often overstates is you know like this war is fought to to raise the idea of war, but war has been killed by deterrence, and. There is there is like some truth to that, but, you know, they wanted to kick the Vietnam syndrome. Like a big part of doing this was, you know, we need to like show America kicking ass and doing the right thing and being a force for good in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that was the case, but it was also about oil. Like it was about like control material resources and it always is. But I think that the uniform like sage managed like America fuck yeah thing that they were able to do here they were never able to do again because all of it in some ways is a broader reflection like this narcissistic reflection of internal American politics right and like you can see that now with the way I don't know something like Ukraine has become like this kind of like polarizing thing where like the Democrats have basically come to read Ukraine as like What's happening in Ukraine is essentially like they're going to avenge Russiagate and the right is reading it as, you know, this is this is all like like Biden's trying to cover for the dirty deals. His crackhead son did, <laughs> like in, it, you know, in Eastern Europe, um, like he like Baudrillard is right that in a lot of ways like the Gulf War was was at least in the way that it was like presented to people and, and metabolized, not understood as. You know, it was it was basically like the US like trying to like going through like a midlife crisis or something like that, like 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 buying like a new convertible and getting an earring or trying to get its groove back. You know what I mean? I don't know, does that make sense? That
1: makes a lot of yeah. sense. I uh I'm gonna read something from another book that I think will help us out and will help as es- esri on Esri's kind of heuristic of peer critique tends to be reactionary. Um, And I have always been interested by that uh, idea, but never been able to pin down why in any substantive form, why that would be the case. So I want to read this to you. This is from Thinking Through Theory uh, by uh, uh, John Levy Martin um, from 2015. Um, This is on page, try to be a good thing here, on page nine. Uh, Theory as Critique. By critique here, I do not mean an empirical or evaluative critique, you are wrong or bad, but rather the consideration of internal consistency and possible scope of the use of terms, ideas, arguments, and so on. In sociology, our penchant for such critique has been weakened on all sides. On one side, since no theory can ever be wrong, just more or less useful, there was no point in criticizing anyone else's theory. She would respond that she still considered the theory useful, meaning that it aided her in thinking the way she wanted to think anyway. On the other hand, the social overlap of sociological theory ties with the social theory means that theories were vulnerable for such criticism in terms of their political implications. Why bother looking closely and carefully to determine if a theory's terms are mutually compatible if one can simply be dismissed as reactionary? But critique is an important part of any attempt to develop an ideational structures. Rather than to be understood as akin to attack, it seems more like it should be akin to repair. All right. Now... I read that because I think most of what we call critical theory is not aiming to repair our understanding of the world; it is aiming to attack for for some stated purposes. But it's usually attacking ad hoc, which gets me to another thing that Sean Levy says later about prejudice and and critique. The greatest implement to any theory in sociology, and by the way. I think we have to take critical theories as being sociological or economic. Um, Or social... Like... Yeah, people always
2: claim that it's like some kind of sui generis, you know, like kind of something. They don't want you to call it philosophy. They don't want you to call it this or that. It's either some kind of social science theory or philosophy. Some kind of thing. So it's got to be one of those two things.
1: Right, exactly. So it's either got to be Political economy, philosophy, or our sociology, which all have fairly similar rules in this regard. The greatest implement in any theory in sociology has been the drive to make results immediately approximate to our prejudices about how the world works. Rather than develop clear thinking, we might be useful in certain circumstances. We expect any theory, or at least any general one, to produce a world that looks like ours, a critique of any biology that doesn't immediately lead to dioramas we find enjoyable. This is problematic for two reasons. First, this is a terrible way to make theories, to insist that they jump to the end point of investigation and account for everything. To use a common physics analogy, we would never have any theory of gravitation if we expected to immediately account for magnetism, the fact that not everything falls at the same rate, and so on. The way to sink a bill in Congress, experienced politicals know, is to attack so many writers and additional parts that it can't possibly be passed without bankrupting the Treasury. So, too, the way to sink a promising theory is to make it account for everything. The second is that many of our prejudices about how the world is, and hence how our theories should look, are totally indefensible. But we distort our theories by making sure that they look familiar by constantly fudging and smudging so that our theories have no strong implications, akin to altering the theory of universal gravitation, so that an object got really light, they actually accelerated more slowly, since that's what we all know is true from experience. And this is why I think that, in many other circumstances, that might be poor, uh, that what might be pure pedantry, asking ourselves at each step, but am I sure, is often the basis for profound insight then theory work can open up a new direction of progress as opposed to merely opening up fancy language to disguise the facts we are already, that we are already regurgitating prejudices. Take us back to Baudrillard after reading that thing from, from uh, John Levy Martin. What is the... What, what things are, is Baudrillard doing? Well, one, he's trying to account for everything in the beginning first with the, uh, sim- the simulation of simulacra theory, which, which runs throughout his later work. Like, when he gives up his kind of attempt to do some Marxist theory of signs and semiotics, that's what he leans upon. Uh, that's, a, that's a terrible thing for us to expect theory to do, but that's also a, a, an equally terrible thing to do as a theorist because it doesn't really make fucking sense. We, we can't build a theory off that. Secondly, I want to point out that many of the observations that, uh, that Baudrillard makes that are substantive and right, such as that thing I read about um mutually assured destruction are common prejudiced amongst everybody including the rand corporation there's nothing other than the poetic way that is phrased there's nothing in that that you wouldn't read in any like standard war reporting from the time which leads me to critique here as critique as status quo like we can't when you use critique this way pure critique critique that doesn't have an objective Um, It isn't aimed at fixing the theory or making sure it is consistent, but just aimed at, like, what, uh, a pure um, rubric of suspicion. What you end up with a lot of the time is just a certain counter-bias. And trying to do so, frankly, I mean, in this way, Baudrillard is prescient. Uh, Baudrillard writes like a fucking tweeter. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. all the incentives in French philosophy in the 1990s is to make the most obsequious and generalizing statements in the most, you know, contrarian way possible, basically to get attention. With, yes. And there is no rigor in this format at all.
2: This is, you know, an explicit project in German philosophy. And the French, we made fun of the French so much, but you know what they wanted to do? At first, they wanted to be super clear Remember that? They wanted to lay everything out. Like, apparently, that's what, you know, French philosophy was known for for a very long time. But, um, yeah, until the 1960s. But how long, for how long have Germans propagated this literary aphoristic style as superior? Because it's kind of like ancient Greece, man. And I, you know, I just don't really think it is. (laughs) I think it, like, yeah, like, I, I, I can vibe on it. And I didn't like, <clears throat> I started off being very dismissive of it in part because I read this book. I read parts of this book. I read this book early on because someone told me this was a good place to start. And I don't think This is the is. worst place to start. <laughs> like, this is, it's a good place to start. If you want to, if you want to just throw people off the scent of critical theory forever. Like um, if you, if you never want people to understand why a vibe can be like politically useful to transmit. I think sometimes it is. I think sometimes in post-colonial theory or queer theory or, or, like, the, um, or, you know, a lot of feminist inversions of psychoanalysis that I think is, like, bullshit, but is interesting, you know, with, like, feminist critiques and, like, the Frankfurt School. There's, you know, act- and, of course, Marx's critique of, of economics. Like, there's, you know, actually kind of stuff to learn and... I, I'm usually pretty glib about the research norms and whatever. But there's, you know, ethically and politically, th- topics of interest there that you don't really cover that well in analytic philosophy. It, it's just like a whole side of human life. But, you know, I guess maybe, you know, recently it's been harder to block out, but I don't know. It's just people have been doing it longer. So this aphoristic kind of, um, or more literary style has some appeal. But unfortunately, it just doesn't do what it says on the tin when it comes to being social theory beyond a certain point. And maybe that has something to do with the way that all the different stories we can tell are piling up. And that's why Baudrillard writes the way he does with all of his stupid mixed metaphors piled up. But, you know, that's that's pretty trippy, man but yeah. the, the empirical claims that like we're not going to see you know bigger wars break out i think i think that's a really dangerous and dumb way to look at this
1: because we definitely saw bigger wars than than gulf 1 since since that time
2: well you know cuz we could go into what happened in the iraq war in mm-hmm. afghanistan
1: but the the, hell, really... the way people are trying to use this for Ukraine, which doesn't make even doesn't even make sense. Like none of the conditions apply to Ukraine.
2: So that, that's what I find like most interesting is that I was like, hey, you know, this would be a fun way to look at the media coverage of the Ukraine war. And going through this, I I think there's probably some interesting like Baudrillardian thing you could say about the way the Ukraine war has been covered but the raw materials for it aren't here like this- the, only thing,
3: the only thing i would i would say towards that there is this video i saw i think i saw it on twitter and it seemed like it was, i don't it seemed like it was a clip of a documentary about like the production team of like Zelansky's right. videos right,
2: and right, right right. i
3: could i i couldn't tell if this was real or not <laughs> because like it they had like a clip where they were like uh showing how they like create like a 3d model of him and then like scan his body and then like insert him into like and but the video was presenting it as right like oh this is a cool this is a cool way we're helping the ukrainians or whatever but it also seems like it was designed to suggest that like zelensky is like i don't know in los angeles or something like like (laughs) <laughs> fake inserting himself into the ukraine you know what i mean yeah yeah i have no idea where this video comes from um so there i mean there is a probably even more accelerated like you know fog of war happening in the media sphere but it's contested now right it's not this like unilateral thing that's being like presented you know in part because you know it's it's more it's more of a multipolar like conflict like they like Russia has a few more a little bit more of ability to put pr- to project like some kind of outward like uh, media media apparatus or media regarding its view or what how it wants people to view what's happening but I think also just within the United States too there's just it's it's more fractured than it used to be so you can't get everybody to line up around any one thing you know even if it's something that would significantly advance, you know, American geostrategic interests globally if this went the way we wanted it to. Right? So it, it is it is just a very different environment, although the the level of, you know, you could say like simulation or fakery has been ramped up even further than it was here.
2: Yeah. Like what what can you say about an essay that sort of claims that the 90s Gulf War is the template for the new world order, the end of war through war? It kind of feels like, well, I mean, it's being published in a French communist newspaper, so why not? But it does seem to dovetail with the kind of, quote, multipolarity, quote, way of, you know, framing the the way things used to be as being uniquely bad. And I'm not saying, you know, the 1990s was a heyday but I'm not sure that things are better now that Russia has a bit more of a foothold. Um,
1: I don't know. I get to, I get to pick like which useful idiot my friends are going to be, or they're going to be useful idiots for NATO or useful idiots for Russia. I mean, it really depends. Like it's a very entertaining proposition that we can get uh, a better deal. We're all, we're all idiots now. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, what what I find what I find interesting about now is that even the people who talk about multipolarity. What they're actually putting on the table is not multipolarity at all. It's bipolarity, which would replicate the conditions that led up to this Baudrillard essay. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but that's not the world we live in because, like, um, just geostrategically speaking, China has been utterly fucked by Russia. <laughs> you know, like. Like the the their attempts to make inroads to Europe is scuttled. They can't even finish the physical logistics of the Belt and Road Initiative, as their southern quarter has a sovereign debt crisis. Um, their between between the Russia situation and zero COVID, their economic production has dropped beneath the United States for the first time in GDP growth. Not in raw production because you're dealing with a completely different scale of people, but um a GDP growth for the first time ever since Dung. Like, these are interesting things to look at, right? But you're not gonna look at it through these these kind of um lenses. And Asra I think you're right to notice that the way multipolarity is presented to people very much comes out of Baudrillard, but that's because the people are pulling multipolarity drag polarity from Dugan who if you actually read where he what he's doing with it, he's taking um uh, English uh geopolitical um strategy from the late nineteenth, early twentieth century and rewriting it in terms of both um air uh land development versus uh trade development, but also rewriting it from the standpoint of postmodernist gobbledygook. So that anything can be anything. Like that, he can be an anti fascist who also is actively supporting like Golden Dawn. Like, that's what this project, I mean, I really do. I am, symph- I am somewhat sympathetic now to people like Matt McManus who think that post-modern, postmodernism, I don't, I'm not, and I should be, I'm going to caveat this. I don't think postmodernism is even a thing. Like, but the, the thinkers that we consider postmodernists, most of yeah. the yeah.
2: French po- and post- German.
1: Po- so, like the
2: post structuralists, because postmodernism is at, at best like a time period.
1: Right, right. Like,
0: like, so
1: the the post structuralists, the post Marxists, et cetera, uh, I consider most of them, frankly, to be uh, not maybe reactionary themselves, but that their thought is more easily employed for reactionary thinking. Um, And I see that here because, frankly, whenever I see a substantive claim here in Baudrillard, but by the time we get to this, you know, 90s period, I've already seen it somewhere in a right-wing thinker, but stated clearly and without all the up bullshit. So it gets published in a communist magazine. Yeah.
2: Like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the thing... <laughs> Can we go to the thing about in vitro fertilization being the... <laughs> yeah,
1: just some weird yeah. shit in this, this essay. Yeah.
2: So a war that that's born of such a clean war, it's, you know, doesn't count the same way that a child from in vitro fertilization, it's not really a child, right? (laughs) So it's it's an argument along these lines. Um, But I I thought, I thought that was the whole point. That if you, like, by the time you get to the hyperreal, I thought this is the whole point of the procession of simulacrum. And why I really do think there's a sort of like, uh, there's a waiting room effect to critical theory when we're all going beyond left and right together, and we eventually actually figure out what each other is saying, even though we decided to play this high noise, low information game, maybe we just decided to play a game like that so we could be in the same room. Maybe it worked for us for some other reason. But once we actually figure out what each other is saying, it's gonna like you know break off in like two directions. <laughs> One of them gonna be real ugly. The other will be defensive and you know hysterical
3: and whatever, but like there's I don't know there's like a French provincialism in Baudry. Like I feel like a lot of this like started out with him being mad about Disneyland, you know, like being mad about Euro Disney, and just like you know it's this is ruining you know <laughs> like this is ruining our fucking nice little like garden we have growing here.
1: Yeah, well, what's interesting about Baudrillard there is he tries to have his cake and eat it too, where there's clearly rage at uh, at Hyperion and Similacrum and Euro Disney, right? But also, like, when he writes about Disneyland and America, he actually likes it better than America. Or at least that's what his parole is. Like. Um, well, he liked the, it better
2: than Europe, right? He
1: right. He
2: that Disneyland in America. Uh, maybe I got this wrong. But I think that, that Disneyland in, in America, or, or like Epcot Center, was it? Like, the food was better than Europe. And you could, it was more walkable. You could walk to different parts of Europe. And that's way better. Like
1: I mean, you know, that is a that is an, uh, you know, that is a the Diogenesian troll in Baudrillard that I like really kind of respect. But you also It's funny if, but now it's that fu- I've
2: actually been to the continent of Europe and been in a walkable city, like that's that's like a suicidal thing to say, if you mean it. Like you don't
1: actually want to live in, in Disneyland. Like Because no <laughs> one lives in Disneyland. Like, that's the, kind of the point. That's why it's walkable, you know? Except for, except for like, a fifth of its workforce. Yeah, but, you know, Baudrillard like doesn't honest. care about political economy anymore, except as metaphor. Yeah, there is the angle that
2: I increasingly see in work that I've seen in Baudrillard that a lot of work, you know, just feels like squandered time stolen from your loved ones. It doesn't add up to anything. and doesn't build the new world. Like... That's something that runs through nihilist communisms of all kinds. And, uh, but yeah, uh, not completely disinterested.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the thing about Baudrillard is, like, I, I think it's somewhat being over charitable to call him a nihilist communist, because I'm not sure he would consider himself a communist at all. Like, what's the point? <laughs> you know, like, what is... Communism would apply a return to something more real, which he posits sometimes, but ultimately says is impossible. So again, what's the point? Um, whereas Nile of Comms, as much as you know, they are what they are, and that it ends up being kind of rating room of eschatology for the worker, um, and a lot of projection on what the worker is or isn't. Um, at least there is a point, like. Uh, like that's that's the whole frustrating thing with me and baudrillard what is the critique for like even if i accept everything he says what is it for
3: i mean yeah he seems like he's he seems like he's trying to do like some kind of like i don't know some kind of like symbolic violence to like this this you know uh all-encompassing apparatus that he's dealing with by just Excel, like doing some kind of rhetorical acceleration and just trying to be like the most jaded of jaded and reflect that back onto every, you know what I mean? Like it, it, that, that's what it seems like he's trying to, like he's just the guy basically like, if only you knew how bad things really were, you know,
2: but you can't communicate it directly. So you kind of have a moving target that bedazzles you. Like uh hypnosis. I, I do think a lot of this, like, uh, vibe charm and critical theory that goes awry is it feels very akin to psychoanalysis when we were talking about how the real is never defined you know i'm sure jake is also probably thinking of like the lacanian real
3: um yeah but I, i don't think he's lacanian though
2: i don't think he is
3: um, I mean, maybe he's just borrowing that. Maybe he's borrowing like the Lacanian the definition of a real, the same way that like he borrows elements of like Marx's thought and kind of half uses them. I, it, it's hard to say.
2: They're contemporaries, which probably means they were fierce
1: competitive rivals. So stealing your vocabulary is a way to undermine your your opponents. I mean, I do think Pierre Bourdieu's uh, stuff on academic terrorism is actually really apt when understanding. The use of concepts like event and real, etc. like like with with someone like Badu, uh and i gotta be i'm gonna mispronounce them, but I'm gonna mispronounce them consistently so people know what I'm talking about Badu's, you know you have an event, you have the fidelity to the event or whatever it's all well, very abstract and weird and sometimes hard to to spell out, but you do it is like of a piece with prior Lacanian conceptions of the real and even with like set theory and platonism and and all that stuff doesn't really make a lot of sense but it is but it is actually consistent
2: and there's like a political aspect to it like right. when you when you've seen a, a political event and you still have loyalty to it like even you know beyond its cell date or something like that it it affects you it changes you you know you've borne, bear witness to the event and you try to carry on some of its spark you know, in these other times, because you've seen a little glimpse beyond the cave, like there's there's like a a, a political reason that that's there, or at least like a. I don't know. I don't know if it's po- political exactly, but it it's a description of like some kind of political virtue, uh, some kind of you know. I guess it's it's it could go left or right but i've always thought of the y- y- useful version of this as pro revolutionary
3: well his whole event thing also kind of it kind of mirrors the way like lacan conceives of like subjective formation in term in relationship to like the father so like for Badu like the event is this thing that basically like structures your entire like subjectivity and sense of like the world in a way that like like, you kind of almost have to maintain fidelity to it because it's your only way of understanding yourself and the world. In the same way that, like, the name of the father, like, situates the subject within language.
1: And I, I bring that up just to say that, like, I think with Pierre Bourdieu, as opposed to Badu, he would not consider what Badu is doing, like, weird academic status game terrorism. Like, it might be strange, it might be esoteric and... But it is in some way consistent enough that if you really work at it it could be knowable. He might he might, you know, wave his finger at expressing it in such arcane ways, but there are reasons why Badu is doing that given his, you know, red platonism project. But uh, with with someone like Baudrillard are I mean I feel this way about Deleuze too. I feel like concepts are deployed in the worst sense of pragmatically. They're deployed in a way to as actually like John Levy Martin was describing, in a way to reinstitute what you already think, but in a way that makes it harder to criticize because it's harder to understand. Now, I want to defend I, I know I'm going hard on Baudrillard here. I want to defend early Baudrillard because I think early Baudrillard, while he's still giving to these flights of prose poetry, uh, is a lot more sensible than he is here. It's the stuff after like Simulation and and, and Simulacra where everything just becomes that over and over and over again because he's 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 found his his marketable re- reduction theory right, and when he hits hard limit cases, this is something John levy Martin talks about why you to be suspicious about this kind of stuff, it gets all poetic because it 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 pushes against there being a limit, and then you just always go back to the Nietzschean justification, well, I'm not trying to system anyway, I think that's a waste of time, you know and then and then I hate to go all Isaiah Berlin on people, but I'm like, that's usually a sign of anti-philosophy as a defense of the status quo. Uh, to use the way like um, uh, Badu might phrase it, or the way Isaiah Berlin might phrase uh, does phrase it, is it's it's it is a way to to come up with emotional justifications for rejecting logical arguments without saying you are rejecting logic. Another person who talks about this uh, pretty pretty accurately, and I think in a kind of funny way, in *Travels of Hyperreality* by uh, Umberto Eco, who's also a contemporary of um and not pretending to be a Marxist, he writes about the crisis of the crisis of reason, about you know the way that one of the problems of the post-structuralists after after Foucault is that for all their arguments about the uselessness of reason and and complete non-historical epochs and uh, or, or, you know, there's no continuity between epistemes and you know, this, that, and the other. That the way they communicate it and and, and not in a superficial way, this is not just a ha, you have to use language, therefore you've disproved yourself. This is deeper than that. Actually relies on weaponizing logical arguments to absurd ends. And and that was of what I was talking about the Mott and Bailey here. Every now and then you do hit something that seems like an argument, not just an analogy. It's not really argued. And if, if, if it was treated as like purely generative, like we're just throwing ideas out to see, to see what, can, what kind of frameworks can stick, which I guess is something the loser's trying to do, that is a slightly more defensible proposition to me than than what this is. Like I, like, I still don't know what I'm supposed to gather about war. Let me rephrase that. He talks about non-war and, you know, semi war and, and this and the other, but I don't know that, that I have a grasp of what real war is for him. And so the whole comparison and contrast that he sets up is a contrast of a moving signifier against another moving signifier.
2: Yeah, as far as I can tell, in the, in the first essay real war um, would be opposed to it would would be the thing that mutually assured destruction prevents, right? Like uh, using all of your capacities, you know, at full blast, the way war used to be fought before the atom bomb.
3: Well, but the thing is like, he even talks like he's talking about Iraq and the the Iraq Iran war just happens and even like gestures towards it and talks about how like, yeah, okay, that was kind of real, (laughs) you know, (laughs) So it's like, so, so only. The, I, I, I guess they just haven't. They haven't gotten nukes yet, so they haven't like caught up. The uh, they haven't. They're not. They haven't caught up the first world in the deterrence game. I don't know, but yeah. I mean, th- and that's the problem with like again. All of this is basically designed to feed back into his like simulations theory, and that you know we're basically at a point where every where this you know humanity is lost in this swamp of some of signifiers all signifying each other with nothing at the base of it and then that's all basically going to lead to like this systemic collapse right and that's why at the end he's like well yeah it's okay if like you know uh the west slash nato has total global domination because like the bigger it gets like the the more it's like gravity will allow it to collapse in on itself or something you know
2: he does say like something um Something with regards to, like, the way the... the um, oh, I remember now. He says something pretty close to, like, a Huntingtonian, like, clash of civilizations kind of thing. It's kind of running through the whole thing, and I guess it's, you know, implied in part by the way the rhetoric in the Gulf War works, because uh, you have this secular Ba'athist that starts an appeal to Islamism um, after having just fought it off. Uh, it's a really strange situation. I thought Baudrillard was just being racist by saying, you know, Saddam was uh, symbolizing Islam really in any way, but I just was sort of ignorant about that turn in the politics.
3: Well, yeah, he's, he's observing the moment of like the kind of complete exhaustion of like secular Arab nationalism. And so Saddam sort of gestures, I think, to sort of try and build up support for what he was doing, you know, at like some, you know, more like Islamist uh, stuff at the time. It's, my loose
2: understanding.
1: I do like that we're all on
2: a first name basis with Saddam. Um, Yeah. um,
1: Yeah. I, I find that, you know, interesting. I I don't know what to do with it. We also are talking about the limitations of a form. I mean, these are three very like relatively short essays that are presented as a font of profundity um, to a whole lot of different groups of people, honestly. Um, And I have found them, um, Maddening. But what I f what I find really maddening about it uh, is is not even that it's all bad, that there are actually good observations in here, but the logic of how they're made is so kind of sketchy that I can't lean into them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean yeah. there's even like a there's
2: a concrete claim that's made that seems, you know, I don't know how else to take it other than kind of right wing. But then it feeds back in an interesting way, maybe that the text isn't expecting. So he claims that a symbolic, resentful... No, it's it's like a revenge kind of instinct that the Arab world still has in war. It's that sort of... In, he said it was infecting the West. I don't, he doesn't really follow this comment up. There is a way in which, like, politics are present, And, you know, I don't really... Believe his weird contagion theory. Um, if any, you know, if anything, it would be something like the Duganists and the, the far right international, not like Islamism. Uh, that's another right. You know, he's French. That's another right wing kind of resonance here. Yeah, <laughs> like those are the vibes that I'm talking about. Doing an imminent critique of vibes. What's with those vibes,
1: frog? Speak your frog tongue clearly. Say what you mean. No, I mean, the thing is, I suspect he does. I just, a bit, it's generalized. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we, I, I guess this is the most frustrating. I guess I'm going to like pivot. My final comment is why is this the one other than some, simul- you know, I get why people say simulation and simulacra are, is one you should read because right. that's like everything after that is just totally up that, that set of essays' is ass. But,
2: it's the black album, right? It's the right. cut off. Like it, you know, it it it's definitely like a really impressive piece of work. But everything afterwards, I don't know. Like I wouldn't really bother with it. It's all kind of you know spinning off of that, it's just not as good.
1: Yeah. So 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 why, however, is this the second text everyone tells people to start with? Because. I mean, even as texts, like we said, if you read these three essays closely, they don't even agree with themselves. Like, I don't get what's up with that. <laughs> like, why, what, what is our... Let, let's put on our, our heuristic of suspicion again and take off our logic hat. Why is everyone pushing this shit? Like, why aren't, why, why aren't more people reading the Divine Left or, um, or Shadow of Silent Majorities or... Uh, Any of his interesting disillusion period or even like his reflections, his early couple volumes of reflections um, and are why are they reading? Is this because it's just simple to teach to graduate students because it has a a dumb, wildly oversimplified, like theoretical epistemological apparatus going on? Like, what do you guys think?
3: I can only speak, I guess, being in the Anglosphere, like it's about America, right? Like the divine left is about the French left in the 1980s, which there isn't a ton of like literature about in the United States, uh so there's like a clear i mean the the i guess there's a clear referent people have there's a clear point of re, point of reference that people can look at with this
2: yeah, my heistics of suspicion off the chart feels like we're highlighting his right wing turn i don't know enough about him to really say, but just getting from the the kind of, like, jealous, phallic tone of this essay, almost. That, you know, some kind of take off of the hyper that seems, I don't know. Like, in vitro fertilization makes this kind of dick-wagging unnecessary. <laughs> it makes this sort of thing obsolete. You don't need the name of the father or something. Maybe it's sort of him realizing that reality being canceled actually kind of gets rid of something that was supposed to uh, supposed to secure him a place or something. I don't know. There, there, that's my counter vibe.
1: So our operational theories are uh, this, people pick up on the right wing term and don't recognize it's right wing. Uh, it's about America, and America's got their heads stuck up its own ass, and uh, it's a lot of heads up their own ass today. I don't know why this is the primary metaphor I have for talking about this period of Baudrillard. um You
2: could, you could say, I mean, he he says that like Saddam almost succeed in getting fucked up the ass or something.
1: Yeah. I, I, I didn't I didn't read that closely. It's something akin to that, um, and then lastly, I might I might I might add that. It's taught a lot because it, it has a very simple theory. Um, I mean, we might talk about all the complexities and weirdnesses that he does, the master theory. But the idea that after, you know, some not understood change in politics and political economy, that we're all in a simulated world and like in a Gita board spectacle way, but on crack rock, then, then there, you know, then I guess it's really easy to teach. It's really sexy. It's also, I don't know, it it makes me want to go to war with the 90s humanities department. Like, it's, it's like maybe go back in time and just like erase France, you know, and Germany. Like, I just squirt, you know, um, because it just yeah, seems like it craft does.
2: Work. So, like, get craft work out of there. Get like, Get a few musicians out of there and yeah, just yeah, just get rid of it.
1: Because the the other thing is, like, this stuff is more popular probably in America and in, in the Anglophone world than it is in the French world, from what I understand.
2: From what I understand, um, this is, like, some old garbage, like, in France. They're like, what? Right. That's like, oh, you really like the song Sandstorm? You stupid American. No one in, in Europe listens to Sandstorm by Da anymore. Like.
1: And, and the other thing I'd like I, I would point out, and, and Bourdieu wrote about this, is a lot of the stuff of philosophy that was popular in France itself is not the the kind of theory that we got in in the United States. Like they they have their own form of analytic philosophy, like basically, and a lot of it cuts very right wing. I think like uh, Bernard Henry, uh, Henri Levy is actually probably a good example of it. Um, which if you know anything about that gross but
2: I don't I, I don't like the sound of that name there's too many French sw- sounding words <laughs> at once
1: oh it's, it's a French sounding like like he's basically like uh, the neoliberal Isaiah Berlin for France yeah. French he, he's all... in my mouth
2: a little bit
3: <laughs> yeah he did like a, I remember reading about like this one man stage play starring himself or whatever <laughs> Re- big hangs around like in a remake of his apartment and just pontificates for like an hour. Yeah,
2: it, yeah that he's sounds insufferable.
1: Oh, it is. Yeah, I'd rather watch eat... the musical about John Rawls. If you want to watch two forms of right wing people fighting, that actually, well, maybe this is dangerous because it makes Alexander Dugan look good. Um, there's a there's a debate between uh, him and Alexander Dugan, and oh my God, does he come off like? I don't know. He comes off like a like like a re- like a Clinton era Democrat, like making excuses for like why we you know can't why we don't need the labor unions anymore, but it's for democracy. Like that's what it sounds like. And so I was uh, like, oh, France has those guys. This is the Macron party. Like,
3: yeah, no, he's he's very much a Macron kind of guy. Yeah, but he's a but he's a philo- he's a philosopher. Uh, this sucks. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so, like, I just, so when I was positing, yes, there's this other French philosophical tradition, it also sucks. It's just, well, I, yeah. I'm sure you could read it. Like, right. Like, it makes look readable claims.
2: Look, look at the uh, French brain, you know, impact that, that has, uh, you know, I'm trying to clean it up. <laughs> look at the impacts that this has had on, you know, the academic left, the anglophone left. Yeah. Like,
1: leads to endless wars like, about about semantic categories. Uh, um, a Sort of adaptation of the star system from
2: French philosophy. And if you think of this, this like a kind of celebrity system, that implies really uneven rent outcomes, the very small winner pool. <laughs> it's not good. Like, it's uh, it's not like a solidarity forever kind of labor market. Um,
1: oh no! Oh no! It is not. Um, so I, I feel like there are similar
2: like I don't know. There's nothing quite like the French university, but there's been like you know attempts to introduce similar cultural, it, like uh, an and economic, like. Bits of it into, you know, like the UC system and stuff like that. Yeah. Which um, have resulted a little bit in a transference of that kind of culture. I really don't even know how common it is in all humanities departments.
1: Um, it's not. Yeah. It's not, uh, um, although I would say there is a kind of petty war in humanities departments, at least the fun things like uh, when Mercer, uh, not Mercer, uh, Emory wouldn't hire Umberto Echo because they didn't want him in the English department. Like like uh the, the other scholars cause they didn't want this non English scholar who's a you know famous uh that kind of stuff is real. But the the celebrity system, um what I find interesting about this is like there's a few of these people from this time period left. I mean we have we still have Badu. Uh that there is still uh what's his face, uh non philosophy, Laurel But I think this is largely over. Like, you know, I don't know how Semiatex has got the 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 uh, University of Ma- Massachusetts, or Wisconsin, I can't remember who published that, but it's one of those two. I don't know how they're going to stay in print these days, because no one's doing this anymore, and I mean, part of me is, thank God for it, but what I would like to end off is maybe, like, the reason why no one does it anymore is because it's universalized. Like, how many tweets or blog posts are like this? Like, particularly on the left, frankly. And, and you see this way to like, this is the thing that, that, that this is enabled, where, and maybe I'm passionate about this because I'm writing a long essay about this right now, where left has been hollowed out, not just where beyond left and right doesn't mean anything and generally means right, but even left can have its categories convoluted to the point where you can uh, functionally agree with a right winger on everything and still call yourself a leftist. And this is the beginning of that for me. There's other time periods you can't do that.
2: Yeah, and and I mean, to, you know, in general, when discussing this sort of thing, I would usually defend a thinker and say that they're merely sort of illustrating the tendency of a period and we shouldn't shoot the messenger. But, you know, and Maybe that's what he's trying to do. But when the vibe's off, I just don't feel like being as charitable because when it comes down to it, this kind of thing is, is about the conclusions of the vibe and how the vibe feels. Like and so if you have something that feels right but has an off conclusion, which a lot of critical theory, uh, that's that's how a lot of people pump you to right wing stuff. Right. Um, but this does. <laughs> I don't know. The suite doesn't go down. And I and I, I kind of think, you know, the either way we take the political point about, oh, don't worry, the American hyper state will, hy-, you know, hypothesize. It'll get so powerful that it won't be powerful at all. Like. Or the the reading that sees him as, you know, hyper resentful of this cucked war where no one even dies and it's like lesbians having kids and like you you know and what he really wants is to destroy the new world order um and uh you know bring about like a real war (laughs) i don't know however however you whichever way you take it
1: yeah, I, I think maybe I would shift the vibe a different way, and I'm going to go ahead and say this is an argument by analogy and not totally invalid, but uh, you know, I feel like Baudrillard's a structural turf. If there's such a thing as structural anti-Semitism, this is structural turfism.
2: Well, it, it's, it's sort of like <laughs> a it's a there's like a natal naturalism that a lot of thinkers have um, that, you know, in, in a bunch of Baudrillard's work, though, it's very plausibly very transpositive because it is all about the hyper real superseding the real and actually being better and being uncontested and just being the new terrain is freedom, Right. Sorry, honey. That's it. Like th- there's something very positive there, actually.
1: And well, I don't well, know how, how. That's what the Wachowski sisters got out of it. But like. I don't know how
2: firmly his tongue is in his cheek in that book. Because you know, yeah.
1: I don't know. This definitely one of the things that I think one of the reasons why we can talk about the vibe being off here, if it's is is that it's perfectly easy easy, uh, easy to interpret this as either being hyper reactionary or hyper, uh, you know, hey, the matrix is actually great, um, and
2: I don't I don't get that the matrix is great here. Right. I, it seem, seems like he's terrified of the Matrix and the way that he makes fun of people for.
1: Right. Well, that's just it. This, this to me indicates that like this is where the, the fact that I've always suspected there's a there's a there's a real mourning of authenticity that is profoundly small C conservative that could turn into big C conservative, even in the work that seems so celebrationary because the fact that he posits the real as a category to be lost itself is
3: does he posit as a thing that's lost though cuz it isn't the idea of like the like i think the third or fourth order of simulation the idea that it just reveals that there was never any basis to begin with or or is it, it is 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 his is his like procession of simulacra is that like is that completely like temporal? I don't know.
1: But that's what I can't tell. And I like what I would say is the way is in some places he does seem to argue that no, that, that the that the loss is like the real is it's like God is dead except it's reality, which implies that God yeah. was never real. Not that God, you know, God is an operative concept in our life is gone and we should mourn that. But no, God was never an actual real category. Like, so the real was never real. Well, oh, that's uh. Statement. I would never want to say that a is not a, but um, um this is a is not a asterisk but yeah. uh,
2: you can't mean it in the same way <laughs>
1: right well, it's tough because the stuff it, it's it's relationship
3: because he's he's commenting on like social phenomenon and history sometimes, but the relationship to it between that and like the epistemology and the metaphysics is very tenuous, right. He doesn't have marks anymore, so he doesn't have something that can, like, tie all this together into some, like, broader cosmic bow. So he just kind of plays these games where he slides definitions around or uses analogies, so it's never really clear exactly what, what this is supposed to mean. Other than, you know, it's, yeah, like, human beings, he does seem to think that human beings, individually and collectively, are fundamentally incapable of accurately modeling or grasping reality at, like, a deep fundamental level and that that is going to, you know, I guess as technological society expands is going to lead to some sort of, um, fatal collapse at some point. Those are the two big takeaways, but in the specifics, it's not really clear, you know, what, how he thinks it's going to get there other than just this kind of vague catastrophism that underlines a lot of his like later work.
2: Yeah. It's a problem when a cultural theorist is like, all right, I'm going to look at something that, you know, completely outside of my field it's not really that different than when you know some neurologist is like it's time to do philosophy like it's you know he's just not talking about shit that he's really interested in anymore like he's just kind of waffling or I don't know is he he really morally incensed by the by the gulf war
1: one of the things I feel like he yeah I can't tell I feel like he is I feel like he is at some points, but then in other points he seems, he seems too cool for school about it. Like, I don't know if it. I don't know if we read this in French. Maybe the tone would be clearer. I highly doubt it, actually. But, um, I can't. I honestly can't tell. I can read this both ways, and that. Not... I mean,
3: yeah, he's like, he's like an embittered former leftist who has just, you know, gotten to a. You know, he's basically lived through the collapse of. You know, essentially the dream of like second and third international Marxism and that whole that whole project, and now he's looking at like the overdetermination that seems to be implicit in like the neoliberal, you know, postmodern era of the way things are headed, and so yeah, now he can basically say, yeah, it's all fucked, and the act of like pointing that out and trying to like I don't know, like forcefully disillusion people, I guess. You know, like there is there is, there is like a bitterness to it that I sense in what he's writing. But there is also, you know, a, a, it's, a, it's that ambiguity where it's like, yeah, it's all going to shit, but it is also kind of comfortable for me because I live in the first world and I have my, gidget, my gizmos and my gadgets and my McDonald's to keep me fucking narcotized.
2: Yeah, we never touched on the Ukraine war, really, other than to say. It yeah, pretty much has very little to do with uh, a lot of you know what he was saying about the gulf war you know you might think that the the media construction and stuff i think someone could use simulacra and, and simulations to like make an interesting like critique of you know media and information warfare and the way that you know the 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 laws of you know information decay and stuff like that like the way that that would all play out in a contemporary setting, but this is simply not the book. It, it doesn't live up to its promise. And there, you know, were always two kinds of philosophy books that I, I took out beyond a certain year, you know, at the library. There were the ones that made everything extremely rigorous. And it was kind of hard to read because, oh my God, do I really have to read through all of this extremely dense Stuff. I mean, I understand it, but damn. And then there was this stuff that had really cool titles, and then when I read it, it didn't actually do what it says on the tin. The Gulf War did not take place. Did not
1: take place. The 90s did not take place.
3: Um... Well, you, you don't want to go back? You don't want to go back to, like, those gross-looking paintings of playing Nintendo 64 with <laughs> a bunch of pop culture ephemera all around you? You don't... You don't think that's worth defending? Oh man, the nineties uh,
2: didn't think it was worth defending. The nineties was right. Like that's the one thing you could say about it. It's like,
1: yeah, they you know, realized they were bullshit. Shit. Yeah, <laughs>
2: but at, least, at least at least they have the sense to hate themselves.
1: I guess my concluding thought is: It any wonder that sixty percent of the generation that that this was the intellectual milieu that was that was popular on the left? Um. Uh, at the time uh ended up being weird reactionaries. I think not.
2: I, I'm yeah. I'm like, this isn't even a joke. It's gonna sound glib or something, but I I really sincerely mean it. I I think that like this must be somehow the product of a lot of the more egalitarian minded people simply dying off in various ways. Like and just leaving a crater in the culture behind.
0: <laughs> like Yeah, well, and it's,
3: it's, it's a sort of like Richard Linklater thing where it's like all these, all this stuff is just like, it's, it's something to stew over and smoke some weed and be like, man, you know, like, what if it's all a simulation, you know, like it's, it's that whole like nineties Gnosticism vibe, you know,
2: I can't smoke enough weed to make this even as good as the other boatyard books we read. This is like the attack of the clones of a series. I have to keep making these references. It's the only way it works. Like, you have to understand that I'm pretty interested in in the vibe most of the time. I like the vibe. There's a vibe to a lot of this stuff.
1: I would, I would actually say this is even worse than Attack of Clones. This is like the... Uh, what's the last... You're saying the Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. Yes, this is, yeah, this is the Rise of Skywalker of the whole scenario. Like... Like, the, like, Foucault's The Attack of the Clones, like, <laughs> 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 like this, this, this is the, the pale, awkward, awful simulacrum of what was interesting in regards.
0: That's it for this time. Thanks again to C. Derek Varn for joining us. This episode was supposed to be the first run at including a video element, but due to technical issues, we had to scrap it in favor of audio only. But we will have video as soon as we figure out the tech details in 2023. Um, yeah, so hope you had a good holiday season. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. There's more coming in 2023. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.